1: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today at home with Lance, being joined remotely. How's it going, Lance?
2: Oh, I'm doing pretty well. How are you, Tim?
1: I'm good. I'm a little thrown by our normal uh, intro because uh, that, you know, I can't say here we are in the Crawl Space studios in Wormtown, but uh, you know, I'll get over it.
2: Yeah, I mean, for the foreseeable future, we are going to be doing these interviews and pretty much everything else remotely, trying to do our part to uh, keep a distance from one another, which. Uh... Isn't so much a bad thing? I mean, Not a bad thing.
1: Not a bad thing. And Lance, for this episode, we talked to an old friend of ours, or some would call him an old uncle of ours, Uncle Cloyd Steiger. Cloyd Steiger worked on Seattle Homicide uh, for a long time. He's a detective in Seattle, Washington, and he's written his second book. You said
2: Uncle Cloyd Steiger. The reason why we have given him this term of endearment is because he is like an uncle the first time you talk to him you realize there's something familiar about him he has a great sense of humor very cool to talk to he listens as well which is which is awesome when you when when you're talking to him you see that he's listening Uh, we also met him at the ASOC conference last April in Albany New York and after that it was confirmed that if there was a a uh, An uncle, by way of proxy, it would have to
1: be Cloyd Steiger. That's right. And Cloyd Steiger has now written two books. In this interview, we talk about his second book. It's called Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer, Gary Jean Grant. And we both read that recently in preparation for this. And Lance, I've been uh, reading his first book, Homicide, The View from Inside the Yellow Tape, while during this quarantine. And it is excellent as well.
2: And Tim, his books are written like a police report. You can, you can tell that he has written them with firsthand knowledge and he's got this account that, that he easily conveys in his words. And it's so interesting to get that kind of glimpse into, uh, into the police work, into what he does, as opposed to it being this massive piece of literature it's written like a cop would write it, which is awesome.
1: Yeah, not much speculation or any speculation in there. It's, it's facts, and, uh, and we move forward chronologically. But it, that doesn't mean that it's not a great read. It's actually a really great read, and I couldn't put it down. And I'm having the same experience with his first book, Homicide, The View From in, Inside the Yellow Tape. And you can check these books out on Amazon or on Cloyd's website at cloydsteiger.com. Okay, Lance, so let's roll tape and hope you enjoy this interview with Cloyd and pick up his books.
2: And make sure you guys stay sanitary, wash your hands, and we'll hopefully be in the same room soon.
1: Oh, yeah, and we may not do a Gossip Pod bonus episode this week, but we will be back next week with more of that. Welcome to Crawl Space, Cloyd Steiger. How are you, Cloyd?
0: I'm doing great. How about you guys?
2: Oh, we're doing well, and thank you so much for joining us. You are so busy. You write books. You you uh, solve crimes. You're you're like the um, who's the guy? Who's the the, the police officer from uh, Commissioner Gordon? You're like Commissioner Gordon. Like Commissioner Batman. Gordon. Yeah. Yeah. I just and, need a
0: big bat light to put up in the air, right? Yeah. <laughs> And it'll be the yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be the crawl space symbol. And but, I even sometimes have to go to the bat room.
2: Right. <laughs> oh, that's, that's clever. <laughs> um, but no, you you are you are nonstop with your work, and and yet somehow you find the time to chat with us. So uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we 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 affectionately uh, know you as Uncle Cloyd. So for oh, anyone listening, yeah. if we refer to you as Uncle Cloyd, that's uh, that's that's just uh, a term of endearment.
0: There That's you
1: go. right. <laughs> I believe Lee Meller has picked up on that too, and uh, I think he referred yeah, to you yeah. as Uncle Lloyd too.
0: <laughs> I'm known on a different local podcast as the Pimp Detective.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? Why?
0: I don't know. That's he's uh, this guy's a Pimp Detective. These two women that are news radio people, and they just like and so they put this thing on their thing like a. Like an, uh, not And when an, I mean, you take a picture and make it look like a cartoon, but it says "Cloyd the pimp detective on it. So <laughs> that's wow. why they name locally on a local crime, true crime podcast. <laughs>
1: nice. Well, that makes sense to me.
2: Yeah, that could be taken uh, one of two ways. That's it right. You could be uh, a detective yeah. who looks into pimps yeah. or you could be a detective who moonlights as a pimp.
0: <laughs> yeah, it could be. I think they intended it as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Either one's a compliment.
1: So, Cloyd, you've written two books now, the the second of which uh, we just read. It's called Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer, Gary Jean Grant. And uh, it's about this, this fellow named Gary Gene Grant and some crimes he committed back in, was it the uh, 50s or the 60s?
0: No, late 60s, early 70s. Okay, that's right. Yeah, Sorry.
2: 69, I think. 69 to uh,
0: 71. Yeah.
2: I want to mention real quick that if you Google Gary Gene Grant and my dyslexia, my mild dyslexia might kick in on this episode and I might call him Gary Grant Gene or, or Gene, Gre- get, like something might happen here. So I apologize.
1: Cary Grant.
2: Cary Grant. If you Google his name, you come up like you are the first hit.
1: This book's the first hit.
0: That's because I'm the only hit. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess that, that leads us to the title, right? Seattle's Forgotten right, Serial exactly. Killer. I mean, th- exactly. there's nothing nothing on him. So you've done this research. How did you do this research?
0: Well, I originally heard about Gary Grant from uh, an email I got from somebody that had, had uh, read my first book. And he said, hey, you know, I, I was a little kid in, the, in Renton, which is a suburb of Seattle. Back in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a serial killer running around Gar- named Gary Grant. What do you know about him? And I thought... I've never heard of him, you know, and I thought I, you know, there's a lot of serial killers people don't know, mm-hmm. but I thought I knew all the ones in the local area in recent history. So I started doing some research and actually had somebody work worked for me for my work, not to intending to write a book for my job to put him in our database. We called uh, the Renton Police Department and they said, well, you yeah, know, we got his name here, but not much else. And then we called the King County Sheriff's who handled some of the cases. And they went, ah, same thing. We, We got a name here. But nothing else. But then I called the uh, prosecutor's office and I said, Do you guys have a court case on Gary Jean Grant? And they said, Well, let me get back to you. And they did. And they said, Yeah, we have it. And I said, Can I borrow it? And they said, Sure. And I went down and got this big box with about 1,500 pages of stuff in it and just scanned the whole thing and then took it back and, you know, and it went to include in our uh, homicide investigation tracking system database. And then about a, a month later, I get an email from this lady from History Press part of Arcadia Publishing, and she says, hey, we saw you wrote that other book. We're, we're interested in uh, older true crime stories, You know, maybe something with a little twist. Do you know anything about, do you have any cases like that you'd like to write about? And I went, are you kidding me? <laughs> funny myself. you should I, mention that. Yeah, funny you should say that. I just found out about one I knew nothing about. And so she sent me a proposal for him. I did the proposal, sent it in, and they said, write the book. So I did. <laughs> That's where it came from. Wow.
2: When you went in to get the uh, information, and they gave you uh, the case file, and you copied it and brought it back to them. What's that procedure like? I know you are law enforcement, but uh, or do they just say, like, hey, go at it? Or
0: Yeah. Well, only because these are friends that I've known for years. Uh-huh. It's not like I'm some guy off the street calling, right? They go, yeah, sure. I'm in mean, the paralegal there. We've known each other for 25, 30 years. And it's like, yeah, and she knows where I was working. I told her what I was doing. It was for my work, and it was. <laughs> oh, yeah, no problem. And no, I think this thing's sitting in a vault somewhere. Nobody's ever asked for it in years and years and years, and nobody's going to ask for it. So mm-hmm. they just brought it up and I took it and she checked with her supervisors, you know, the people. Oh, yeah, he can have it. <laughs> so Only because I had yeah. that personal connection. You know, it's not something I would normally do, but uh, because I I just picked the phone, called people I know and, and got the file, uh, scanned it and returned it.
1: Um, yeah, we, we wrote this book very kind of matter of factly, I feel like. You um describe the victims and the circumstances of really how they go missing at first right um, and then how they're found and and I love your photography too. I think that's very cool that uh, that all of uh, you know most of the photography in your book is from from your visits to the area, I take it
0: right I went back to I went back to the uh, scenes, how they look now and uh, compared mm-hmm. to then. and they, and a lot of the photographs from then. Most of them were in the case file. a few of them I got from the uh, Renton History Museum, a lady there, Dr. Elizabeth Stewart, that was very helpful and helped me research his case and uh, and so we uh, we got that and uh, put it together and then i like I said, I wanted to go out there and see how the scenes look now. so I visited all these scenes and photographed them these the the, the they told me when I got the book they said they want about thirty six thousand words, which is not very long, mm-hmm. and about fifty photographs so. I, that's what I did. Then I also got some from the Seattle Times archive, a couple of photographs um, to put up there, and then and that's where I got them. It's a
1: very consumable book. I mean, I, I honestly, I read it in a weekend. It was it was one of the, it was yes. a weekend read that I couldn't
0: put down. Yeah, it's a quick read. There's no doubt about that.
1: And I'm a slow reader, though. It took me it took me all 48 hours.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it it is a uh, it's a
2: you said it's a it's a quick read, um, but it's it's quick because. Because of how uh, fascinating it is, and and as you're reading it, you start to ask yourself, how was this such a forgotten crime? How is it? Yeah. How did it go so unnoticed? Was it because of the time period? Was he overshadowed by other criminals? Um, and did it surprise you when when you started really looking into it that you hadn't have heard of heard of this guy because it, it was in your area?
0: Yeah, it surprised me a lot. Like I said, it was just something that happened and then just faded into into history. Nobody. Nobody uh, paid much attention to him. It was before Bundy was, was cr- cruising the area here. Uh, the last one was about three or four years before we knew about Bundy. And then uh, not, we didn't know him as Bundy. We knew him as just Ted. And then uh, and it was years before, you know, all this other stuff happened around the country. And like I said, it, it started this the, the December after the Manson murders in Los Angeles. And that's what was going on in the news, the Vietnam War. But it just kind of got you know, it was reported pretty widely when it happened and then it just disappeared.
1: Now, um, one question I have basically just from the title is, uh, why not forget about this guy?
0: Yeah. It's not the guy you want to remember. It's his victims and they deserve to be remembered. Right. Cause there were mm-hmm. two young girls and two, two teenage girls and two six year old boys who were victims of this guy and they need to be remembered. It isn't about remembering Gary Grant. He can rot over there in prison and sit there and, and do everything. But, uh, the victim's story and that they lived and how they died. These people need to remember that.
2: Yeah, for sure. Can you uh, run down uh, his victims for us?
0: His first victim was Carol Erickson, 19 year old uh, who lived not far from the uh, downtown Renton area and was going to school, taking culinary arts and wanted to walk to the library about a quarter mile away and took a, uh, a trail along the Cedar River, which the library actually spans over the river, and she took that to the library, was there until after dark on December 15th, 1969, and then was walking back and just never got home, and she was found the next morning by a guy checking the river for fishing conditions, and then, uh, so that was the first murder, and then about a little over a year later, uh, Joanne Zuloff was a 17-year-old girl with her parents up on the East Hill of Renton, which at the time was in unincorporated King County, but it's in the city of Renton now. And she uh, was home on a Saturday afternoon. Her parents were there. It was a nice day. And she told her mom, I'm going to go for a walk before dinner. I'll be back in about a half hour. Walked out the door and never came back. And it took a couple of days to find her. And then she was in Woods near her house. Both Carol and and Joanne had been uh, sexually assaulted and strangled and murdered. Well, Carol was stabbed and strangled. Joanne was bludgeoned and strangled. And then it was uh, April, I think, of 1971, it was a Tuesday. And it was a, like a teacher's workshop day where there's no school. And these two little boys, Brad Lyons and Scott Andrews, were good friends. They were six year old boys that lived in the same residential neighborhood, a little farther away uh, than Joanne. And they were uh, outside playing, their mothers, so they, they played all the time in the street, and one of the mothers was out there watching them in the yard, and at one point, one of them came in to get cookies for everybody else, and they were going about their day, and then she looked out in the yard and only saw the younger brothers and didn't see Scott and Brad, and so she said, uh, asked ask her younger son, where did they go? Oh, they are playing in the woods, which was no big deal, because they used to always play in the woods, right? It was This was a very naive time. Renton was a small town where nothing ever happened, and... Mm. They disappeared. They didn't come back. So of course, you know that that first night was agonizing for both sets of families. But a big search was put out, and it took three or four days before they found them in deep in these woods. And they were both dead. One had been stabbed. One had been strangled. And they were covered with brush and lined up on the side of the road. Both were nude. And so, you know, that was that. Those were all individ, looked at as individual murders. And uh, you know, the the one of the two boys was the murder worst murder in Renton history at that point. They'd never even had a double murder of any kind in the history of Renton before that point. And then they had to have it being a child. Two children made it even much worse. And so when they were first looking for the boys, because they were not far from the Cedar River also, uh, the police, as a matter of fact, I talked to some of the surviving detectives, and they said they thought the boys probably fell in the river and were swept mm. away. And that's what they were yeah. looking for when they found a murder. Then. All bets were off. And, uh, and and there were just all kinds of twists and turns in this murder that after the investigation, I mean, it, it just sent this thing down different directions.
2: As someone in that position uh, later on in time, what what would you know of like how to start an investigation like that? Because you said it's it was the worst. They never had a double murder, let alone yeah. two two little boys uh, stripped naked. Where do right. you start with that as as a law enforcement organization?
0: Well, it's real tough for an agency like this. At that time, there were five detectives on the entire police department, right? And they, they were they were generalists. And they handled occasional murders, mostly smoking gun type murders, not, you know, were the, were the suspects painfully obvious from the beginning. And so it was, you know, it was a big challenge. But these guys actually did pretty good work and, and paid attention and followed up some big clues that helped lead a successful uh, conclusion of this case. But it was, you know, you just got to start and you know, those ones with, with, the, with the kids in the woods, I mean, having no forensic tools that we have today, right? I would be all forensically into this case, right? This is what we're going to do. We're going to test this, test this. They didn't have those options back then, right? So it was a real tough. You know, it got sent in a weird direction when a crazy guy basically made a false confession to the boy's murder. And, and yeah. he was actually charged in the case, which, you know, sent it spinning one way, which was completely... Not the way it should have gone, although to the detectives' credit, they continued to investigate and actually did work that ended up bringing it right back to the real guy. Even though they had a guy charged, they didn't just stop. They kept looking for stuff and, and did stuff that made it successful.
1: Yeah, so that guy you're you're talking about is a guy named John Chance?
0: Yeah, John Chance, yeah. <laughs>
1: Ironically, um, with, his na- with his name, like what are the chances? Like he <laughs> he walks into this office and says he wants to hurt kids, right? right. As uh, right. the same day that kids were murdered, and right. he uh, wasn't the killer. That's he
0: wasn't. That's just weird odds.
1: Unbelievable coincidence.
0: One of the lessons that people can take from this, if you're investigating these types of crimes, is that when they first talked to Chance, he seemed not to know much about the crime. And kind of said i don't think i did this but then they put him in a mental hospital downtown seattle overnight and came back the next day and suddenly he could recite what happened in the case and started telling everything and how he did it and that he covered the bodies and all this type of stuff which makes them think oh wow this guy is the guy well the problem is they had released all that to the media and it was in the newspapers so he just read the papers and then regurgitated what he read to them um fortunately these guys were a little skeptical of his confession And still wanted to investigate because that was a huge. Otherwise, this guy would have gone to prison probably, and he wasn't the right guy. But he did confess to the crimes.
2: How does that go down? How do they approach somebody like John Chance and say, "Listen, I know that you just confessed, but I mean, do they really give like pieces of the investigation to him to let him know, or, or is it just no? I mean, they
0: they did. I don't know that they had once once they got once they were going down the right path. I don't think they had any contact with Chance. Well, they couldn't have because he was represented by an attorney. So they just they just followed the leads and the evidence. What they did basically is at the boy's scene, they got explorers out there which are like scouts, explorer scouts, they search and rescue, but they also do evidence searches and they do a grid search and some 18-year-old kid in the brush near the boy's murder scene found the knife. And that was huge. And so so they got the knife and they took it right to the crime lab and the, the the criminalists that examined it who ironically i've known for years i know who he is he's long retired but i knew him i worked around him when he was still working um took it had it had uh black electrical tape around the handle so he unwound the tape looking for fingerprints because that was about all you could get from that type of thing back then and when he got to the bottom there was a name etched in the handle so i mean they're like wow yeah there you go right well that guy was in the Marines and in basic training during the time of the murder so they know he didn't do it. But he was coming back like the next week he was done with basic training and they talked to him and he told them all about oh yeah I had that knife yeah I bought it so and so I I sold it to this guy down the road and they were well, how do you know do you know how to get a hold of him well I know he doesn't have it anymore because he he told me he gave it to this other kid this 14 year old kid and he it gave him the kid's name and so he had it so they went to the uh they went to the uh middle school where this kid went to school and interviewed him and he told him about, yeah, I had to, I had the knife, but I was out with my buddy who lives in this trailer park, which is trailer park over by Lake Washington and Renton, which ironically now has million dollar condos, but it was like a trailer park then on the same lot. Um, he says, yeah, he left, he left, I left it in his truck. And he said his dad found it and put it in his bedroom. He better not go get it. And he goes, who's your friend? He says, my friend's Gary Grant. Course, here you go. He's a 14 year old kid hanging around. Gary at that time was 21. It shows you kind of the mentality. He's hanging around with 14 year old kids. You know, what's going on there, right? Anyway, so he, uh, yeah. well, they, they did some research and found out that Gary's Grant's father was like a residential security guard. He drove around in a residential patrol car. And they thought, yeah, you know what? These boys might have thought he was the police and they might have gone with him somewhere. So they actually focused on Gary Grant's father because Grant had told this kid that his dad had the knife now. So they went to talk to Gary and, I mean, excuse me, to Gary's dad. And while they were talking to him, he didn't know anything about any knife, he said. And Gary comes pulling up in a truck. Well, one of the detectives goes outside just to kind of intercept him and says, Hey, Gary, we're talking to your dad. Why don't you have a seat in in my car here? And Gary goes, okay, and gets in. And when he does, he sees the bottom of Gary's tennis shoes. And he remembers there was a footprint in the at the scene right next to the boy's body. And it looks exactly like that print. So he went in and got his partner and said, come on, we got to go. We got to go. It's like, what? Come on. <laughs> they took Gary downtown, to, uh, downtown Renton, and uh, ex- asked him for his shoes. He gave him the shoes. And they had a plastered cast of the footprint and he compared it and it looked exactly the same same size same everything so that's when they that's when they really focused on gary and, and that was like in the early afternoon and they were with him all night long until three or four o'clock in the morning because they t- they wanted to give him a polygraph well they didn't have their own polygraph operator so they, they uh they used the seattle police department's polygraph operator so they by the time they called him it was like 4 30 in the afternoon he already left and got home so they made arrangements for him to come back. He said he could be back by, like, 6.30 or 7. So they decided to take Gary out to get something to eat, just to relax. And they talked to him, chit-chatted about everything, nothing to do with the murder. Finally went back in, and Dewey Gillespie was the name of the polygraph operator who was long gone before I got there. I never, I didn't know him, and he's long passed away now. But he asked Gary to come in, and he just starts asking the preliminary challenge, uh, questions that a polygraph operator would ask, and Gary starts crying. Mm-hmm. A few minutes later, Gillespie steps out and tells those guys, he just confessed to me that he killed the two boys. And they're like, what? <laughs> so, so they go, yeah. they go out. They, they go in and they start talking to him. They, they take a recorded statement where he details everything about the case. But the recording fails during the most important parts. It doesn't record. So they have to go back and Fortunately, they checked then and didn't wait till later. And they have to go back and take a written statement from him. And they do all that. And, and then Gillespie just comes in and says, can I talk to him again? Yes. Yeah. So he goes back in there and they're sitting in the, in the room and and Gillespie just says, I'm thinking of a girl and with, uh, by the river. And Gary says, did she have long, dark hair? Was she stabbed? And of course he starts talking about Carol Erickson. Then he confesses to Carol Erickson's murder. And right and then in the middle of his Description of Carol Erickson's murder. He suddenly segues into Joanne Zulas murder. He says she had short reddish bob haircut. I hit her with a rock, and he just and then he confesses to that, not even being asked. So they then they get some King County detectives down there, and the sheriff's office, and then them, and they have this big statement. Then it's a big splash because they got another guy already charged with two of these murders, right? in jail right? Charged, charged with the murder so the prosecutor has to deal with that yeah it was just there was a lot of twists and turns even after that point is
1: uh is that something that's common this guy it's kind of shocking in the book when it's w- when, when you write that part and you learn oh yeah he just confessed and it's like what I, I, is that common
0: yeah it can be i mean yeah it depends on him you know it's, it's his his, his the, the lesson here also is the polygraph now i everybody i i review a lot of Murder cases, especially from smaller agencies, and they give everyone a polygraph, right? And then if someone passes the polygraph, they say, So and so is eliminated as a suspect. He passed the polygraph. No, 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 no. <laughs> First of all, yeah, Gary Ridgway passed a polygraph. Uh, um, uh, all these, Ted Bundy passed the polygraph. Uh, all these guys, serial killers, have passed polygraphs. You don't eliminate anybody with But the polygraph isn't the test, the test is just a prop. The value of the polygraph is the interview done by the polygraph operator before and after the test because that's the real important thing not that it doesn't matter what the test tells you like I say i worked I worked homicide for twenty two years. I think I probably actually gave two people had two people polygraphed during that time and they were both witnesses, right <laughs> And I always asked the suspect or interviewed, are you willing to take a polygraph just to see what they'd say but i yeah. I didn't do it because I you know it, it I had more confidence in my own ability to interview than I did necessarily at some polygraph operator. But I just, people just rely on it way too heavily. But it does have value if you have someone that's a good interviewer that's doing it. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse novel. It in the our box. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senua Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game
1: Pass. Yeah, and it seemed like Grant was emotionally immature, and maybe, maybe that had something to do with it.
0: Yeah, very immature. Like I said, hanging out with a 14-year-old kid and all kinds of weird stuff.
2: Was Chance and Grant connected?
0: No connection at all nothing that's that's it you think because i think they kind of thought well maybe this guy was with chance you know when they're still looking and trying to figure out you know like, what's going on here and you know it's just it's just bizarre
1: it's so bizarre this guy was walking around in the woods for like a couple of days i think and, yeah. and he just walks into uh like the city hall if i'm not mistaken or to like the uh, uh,
0: no he walked into the, he walked into the emergency room of the hospital in town okay
1: That's right. Yeah, because
0: he wanted, yeah, he wanted, because he goes there and they give him Thorazine and he feels better, right?
1: Right. (laughs) But he said, I want to, I have an urge to hurt little kids. And that's what happened. Yeah. Same day. That's so bizarre to me.
0: And it wasn't until a few days later, the emergency room doctor that treated him, you know, dealt with him, went away. And then he was home a couple days later. And he has a little girl and his wife made a comment. They still haven't found those two little boys. And he starts thinking about it. He goes, oh, my God, that guy came to the hospital it's that same day. And then he wonders, can I even tell anybody because the doctor patient privilege, you know, so he he calls the hospital lawyers and, and finds an exception, a battered child law. So he's able to report it. And that's what started all that. What
1: A crazy red herring like
0: it is. Well, that's that. First of all, every who done it murder. Is full of red herrings, right? <laughs> you go down so many rabbit holes, yeah, or so many rabbit holes. Because the first few days, you think you're hot on the trail, and you're probably following something that has nothing to do with your murder, right? And that's just the way it always is. And you have to, go back, you have to go all the way back to the beginning and start over. Some people just just keep going down that same rabbit hole, trying to make it fit their crime, and they're wasting their time. And they're not going to solve the case. But you know, every who done it, you get rabbit hole after rabbit hole from the beginning. You gotta, you gotta separate the wheat from the chaff, and that's not easy to do.
2: How do you how do you do that? Because I can imagine that if you have a, a lead that's taking you down a rabbit hole and you feel passionate about it, and then you find out that this is not uh, relevant or pertinent to your case, like how do you deal with? Okay, I got I, I have to put on, I have to put aside that I might have just wasted some time. Do you consider it a waste of time? Uh, how do you move on?
0: Well, it's it's not a waste of time if you should have gone down the rabbit hole. Well, the first thing, is, your question has a great point. If you feel passionate about it. You shouldn't feel passionate about any lead. Right. right? A lead is a lead until it's solved. Then you can feel all the passion you want. But you shouldn't feel passionate that this is the right one. I always tell people that a a murder investigation, you have this huge set of dominoes all set up. And your point is trying to find the first domino to push over that causes all the other all the other ones to fall over. And if you find the right one, all the other ones will fall into place. But if you find the wrong one, it won't work. That's not the right domino. Go back and try again, right? Because once you hit that first domino, everything seems to fall right into place. Everything fits perfectly. There's no big holes. But the ones where you go and you got holes here and holes there. eh, I don't like this. And one of the things you do, first of all, is you look for what you know you're seeing and you don't release all the information you're seeing, right? So you look for things where somebody, some fact comes up that only somebody that knew something about this crime could know, right? This person was here. This person was there. I had a murder one time of a girl body dumped on the side of the road and she'd been there i mean she'd been dead for a few days but and she was nude. but she had on her back when we looked at her a little tiny piece of of green like a lawn and garden bag just a little little remnant stuck to her back right and so i didn't tell anybody that except for the people that were there and then we were in the office a day or two later and because it was a big media case because it was right behind this big festival anyway uh, I get a call, an anonymous call from this lady. She says, "My friend says she was at a party, and her and her uncle told everybody that he saw he was at his friend's house, and his friend had a girl in a garbage bag, her body. Well, ding, 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 garbage bag. I knew that was the right lead, so I took off after that one. Yeah, not passionately, <laughs> but thoroughly. <Right.
1: laughs>
0: and it, but you know, that was like at noon, and by five o'clock the next morning, the guy was in custody had had a confession, and it was like." A long night, but that's how it goes. Because when, when that first domino falls, they just all fall into place.
2: So, what was the first domino with uh Grant?
0: Well, first domino was the knife. Okay. With a name that led them to this kid, which when they saw the bottom of a shoe print, that was the one that knocked everything else over. Right. They had the right guy. They had a. They had a. They had, they had, there's a photograph in the book of the shoe print, and that shoe print is what blew this whole case wide open and ended up getting all four uh, cases solved.
2: So he was never like on their radar before this? Not at all.
0: No, no. Although it's funny because I talked to one of the detectives said, I asked him, you know, I said, did you know who Gary Grant was? He goes, we never had any problem with him. I knew who he was kind of. He said, this is a small town, Right. But he would just wander. He would walk everywhere. And he, this guy lives like 10, 15 miles out of town. He'd walk all past my house. I'd see him outside my house, just walking by. He walked everywhere, and it was weird. That's what he would do. He'd just roam in the woods, and he'd come across people and kill them. And you know, if you look back at these things, they did too. There were little stressors that happened in his life just before the murders. Like one of them was he would he would he had a good friend named uh, Frank. And he was like a puppy dog and Frank was the cool guy and he'd hang around Frank. And one time, the first time Frank ever yelled at him and got mad at him, that was the night before he killed the two boys. Mm. So, I mean, these little stressors happen. Yeah. So, I mean, weird stuff.
1: I also thought it was interesting that, um, and correct me if I'm if I get any of these details wrong, but um, there was a woman that he was engaged to at one point, and his mother didn't approve of that relationship, or his parents didn't approve of that, and they sort of forced right. him to choose, right?
0: That's exactly right. For yeah, and that's the kind of people they were, and yeah, and he was like, oh, I can't, I can't marry you. My mom doesn't want me to. I mean, first of all, that's very immature.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. For
0: an adult, you say, hey, sorry, this is marrying, right? But and then he dumped her, you know, and then the other thing that he did was kind of ironic, which fits uh, the profile was he was seeing this other girl later. And he and, you know, she'd always told him, you never you say you do those things, but you don't get paid to do these things. And so he gave her a watch and he said, here you go. See, I do get paid for what I do. Well, it was Joanne Zuloff's watch. he would taken off her body. And that's typical, you know, taking a little souvenir off the body and then. Given it to his then girlfriend. And I I want to tell you a a brief story that was ironic. It was uh, the day this book was published. I get an email from a woman. And she said, I was just yesterday wondering whatever happened with Gary Grant and if anybody ever wrote a book about him. And I Googled his name today and found about your book. And she tells me this story about when she was in high school, she was in the same group of friends with Grant. And they had this uh, Korean exchange student, and they wanted to go out to uh, to Crystal Mountain, which is a ski area near here, because this girl had never seen snow. And they took her up there, and, and she lived out halfway there. And they picked her up, and it was this Frank guy, Frank Piggott, who she knew. And she said she that was the first time she met Gary Grant. He was in this, he was in the truck too, and she had to sit next to him. And she said he just gave me the creeps all the way up there, and he was just weird and really odd. And he, and he, like when we were up there, he said she said. Uh, he would say something funny, then look to Frank and see if Frank laughed about it. And if Frank laughed, then he would laugh, too. But if Frank didn't, he wouldn't. And she goes, he just gave me the creeps. And then later on, she moved to Canada and found out about these murders. And she goes, oh, my God, this guy's a serial killer. But just ironically, she had, she had Googled his name the night before my book was published. And that's and had oh, never wow. heard. had no idea. <laughs> and that's a weird thing. Is there anything significant
2: uh, about the date that your book was published or? or the day that No, she, I don't
0: know. She... I, no, I don't think so. I think it was just whatever. It's one of those twilight zone moments, you know, it just happened. That's
1: as big of a coincidence <laughs> as uh John Chance walking into the ER. Yeah, or... it really That's,
0: is. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and and she
2: she reaches out to you, tells you yeah. the story. Well, what was your reaction? You got back to her obviously, right?
0: Oh, yeah, of course. I said, "Oh my god, what are the odds of this?" I actually posted it on my website, this letter. I posted her email, I mean, on, on my website under a, a blog post, just to show you how ironic it is.
1: Oh, that's really cool. And
0: that's at voicefinger.com. But, um, yeah, and and, and and I got back to her and said, oh, I can't believe it. You know, <laughs> what are the odds of you Googling it the night before it's published, <laughs> having <laughs> no clue that a book was written, to find out if anybody ever wrote a book about it? Right. And if, <laughs> it's just weird. Um, I you know
1: I I was uh, listening to an audio book uh, recently and Lance I think you were you consumed the same one it was a John Douglas book I think it's called The Killer Across the Table and in that yeah. book um, he goes over some some killers and one of them was the very similar situation where his mom or his parents. Um, needed him to choose over the woman that he loved and wanted to be with or his family. And he ended up choosing his family, right. his mom, and then he ended up killing people or at least one um, I think young girl later. Um And I, I thought right. that was interesting because I've read them both back to back. And I wonder if that's more common, something like that is more common than we realize.
0: It probably is. And you know, in, in, in the book, I, I refer to, he had like four psychiatric evaluations and I refer to some of the things that came out in those that are kind of telling he alleges. and I'm not sure if it's true that he was sexually abused by his mother, but his mother was certainly very violent and a hardcore alcoholic and his dad was very meek. And so he had all these issues going on. I have no idea. I have no doubt that he really was screwed up yeah. you know, and, and ill, but you know, it's not an ex- he wasn't legally insane, that's for sure.
2: Right. It, it's an interesting point, Tim. You bring up that book, The Killer Across the Table. And one of the things that stood out, and it I think it's very applicable to uh, Grant here, is um, John Douglas had the, the opinion that someone like these characters that he's profiling, including someone like um, Grant— who I don't think he profiled, but it's it fits the no, profile. And of nobody the did, right? It fits. <laughs> yeah. he, he fits the type of person that he describes in the book Killer Across the Table. Uh, he he, right. he makes this incredible point about these these types of people being incarcerated and being let out because they're rehabilitated, and he thinks that that's more or less uh, a false statement because they were never rehabilitated in the first place. They 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 never were. They they couldn't function in the first place.
0: That's exactly right. You can't, re- you're not going to rehabilitate these people, right? They're, they're, you can't, yeah, they're not, they, they can, they can be model prisoners because they have no opportunity to offend, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they're not, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Grant is probably a model prisoner. He's been in prison for almost 50 years now, but it, you, if you let him out, I have no doubt. I, have, I actually have a serial killer who was pro- probably is not a model serial killer, or model prisoner who... Lee Miller and I actually, I I handled him in the late, late nineties and Lee wanted to go talk to him. So we went to go see him, uh, last March. Yeah.
1: Dwayne, what is the name? Dwayne Lee Harris. Dwayne Lee Harris.
0: Harris. But when I was interviewing him back contemporary, contemporaneous to the murders, and one of the things I said to him is, Hey, Dwayne, if I let you walk out of here right now, what would happen? He said, You'd have four more body bags, and that's exactly right. <laughs> I would. Oh my yeah. god! He said he had a compulsion to kill; he couldn't stop it.
2: Well, at least he knew it, right? If you're in prison, you you and you realize you're not getting out, it must be so like freeing for that person to yeah. be able to be interviewed and say, "Just go do it again," you know, and yeah, instead exactly. of being yeah. out of prison in the in the wild, so to speak, and having to cover up everything, it, it has to be right. such a. Like a relief, I guess, of, of sorts.
0: Although my favorite, my favorite quote from my prisoner or prisoner's interview with him was, "The serial killing thing wasn't as glamorous as I thought it was going to be." Right. <laughs> oh,
2: <laughs> should have got into podcasting.
1: Yeah, what you, that's right. Did he? He expected a red carpet, like for the documentary I that's going to be made about him.
0: It. Yeah, he... but he sure because he was laying it out when we had him. We have hours and hours of conversations with him, talking to him because once we had him. Yeah, then he was to talk about anything. <laughs> That's incredible.
1: So you didn't uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you did not visit uh, Grant in prison, right, for this book?
0: I did not.
2: No, I did. Tim, he he was scared. He was scared. I think, Cloyd, you emailed us and said you were really yeah, scared. I scared. To yeah, that anything.
0: was it. <laughs> no, the reality is, you want to know the real reason I didn't is because uh, after I before I'd written this book, I got a. I was talking to a King County Sheriff's Cold Case Detective. Who said, "God, we got these? We got a couple of you know skulls that were f- found up in the east east of Renton back in you know, like the early '70s." And I'm trying to work on those. And I said, "Do you know about Gary Grant?" <laughs> who? <laughs> His own agency had done it. Gary Grant? No, I said he was a serial killer working up there. You're kidding me! And so I sent him the file. And they were going to go up and talk to him in prison. I don't know if they ever did, but I didn't want to get in the middle of that, you know. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow.
2: That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. One of my questions that I wrote down was. Uh, if you think that he might be responsible for more than he's uh, been attached to or more than he's claimed.
0: He certainly could be. He certainly could be. I don't know for sure, but he certainly could be. Interesting. What,
2: so what's the deal with these skulls? When when were they found?
0: I, yeah, I don't know. I haven't talked to him since then uh, about that. But I mean, there's there's a lot of found bodies and skulls and there's a lot of deep woods in this area and, and they're coming across sc- skeletons all the time. Some of them are murders, some are not. And it's not uncommon. There's a lot of, uh, unidentified. They're probably doing DNA on them now or trying to get DNA and do genealogy to find out who they are. But I haven't heard anything in a long time.
2: Great. Do you have any opinion on religion? Was religion involved in his upbringing, uh, Grant's upbringing at all?
0: Uh, I don't. I didn't see a lot of references to religion or church or anything. I I don't remember anything specifically about that.
1: Can you tell us more about the uh, homicide tracking database that you uh, do some work with?
0: Yeah, I don't do the work with. I am the chief criminal investigator of it. Okay, yeah. (laughs) I'm the boss. Pardon (laughs) us. You don't have to call me chief. You can call me Lord. That's what I tell my employees. Anyway. (laughs) No, this is actually uh, the HITS. It's called HITS for short. Homicide Investigation Tracking System. It's part of the Washington State Attorney General's office. That's where I went when I retired from Seattle PD. I've worked with HITS for years on cases, but it, it actually was started by Bob Keppel, back in the early 80s because he wanted a database to compare cases across jurisdictional lines for cases like Bundy and Green River and all that. So we have I, I have investigators that work for me and they're out in the these agencies and they get information on every murder that happens in Washington. Oregon is also on board in Montana and we have a big database. We just enter everything, every murder, no matter if it's a doper murder on the corner or it could be a serial killing, that's in our database. And that way if somebody, if we see things that that looks similar across jurisdictional lines will call the agencies and say, hey, you know, you should talk to those people over there. There was a, uh, what's the guy's name, the serial killer from Spokane. Spokane is 280 miles east of here. And Tacoma had a couple of murders that were very similar. Yates, Robert Yates. Tacoma had a couple of murders that were very similar, and the HITS system found it and said, you need to talk to the people in Spokane. And they did, and they found out they were all the same guy, right? And they didn't know otherwise. But, so that's one example of a success. But we also, uh, like I said, people will call us all over from all over the country. The FBI calls us all the time. RCMP calls us all the time because they say, oh, we got this guy. He says he knows about a murder that happened in Seattle where the guy was in an alley. And so we can run keyword searches and things and find that case if it exists. Sometimes it doesn't exist, right? Yeah. But we can find murders. And uh, if somebody starts talking about one murder and then switches to talk about a different one just by circumstance, we can see if we can find that case and link them up. And that type of thing. So that's one of the things we do. Plus, we also go around to these agencies, and they submit their cases for us to look at and hash out and review, and you know, give them suggestions on how to move forward. Because everybody works for me. My investigators are all retired homicide detectives, mm-hmm. experienced homicide detectives.
2: And I bet that comes in uh, really handy when you're going around to other law enforcement agencies and you're presenting this idea to them. They they must take to that oh, yeah. pretty 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 easily.
0: We're so established now because it's been since the early '80s. Everybody knows us because yeah. we also do other things. Like we'll put bulletins out statewide on anything, not just murders. If we, my my analyst will get, I'm looking for this guy for a robbery. We put it out statewide, and boom, 15 minutes later, somebody. You know, we had a, just the other day. We had a uh, unidentified human remains uh, body was washed out of a river over in uh, I think it was in Eastern Wash. Anyway, they put descriptions out and some photographs of tattoos and a seattle detective called i know who that is and, and it, it was identified in like 10 minutes wow so that's one of those things we do yeah so i mean we do all this stuff and, and then we hash out these cases that very
1: cool yeah we uh want to pick your brain about a, a murder case an unsolved murder that we've been covering on crawlspace um her name's sheila shepherd but uh we should probably uh do a separate interview um but i am curious in you in your work um how how common is uh post-mortem stab wounds it's
0: it's it's not uncommon yeah it's not uncommon yeah because you know stabbing it depends it, it, you're not talking about where she's killed by stabbing and then continues to stab after she's dead you're talking about she died some other way and they stabbed her while she was dead that's right see that's almost like a sexual thing hmm. you know it is psychologically yeah i would look at it that kind of thing and overkill and what's going on with that so, but I've seen, I've seen postmortem stab wounds a lot of times. It's not unusual.
1: And is that something that, uh, the homicide, uh, the hits, uh, system would, um, pick up on? Like, is that a, a marker? Oh
0: yeah. Um, first of all, we, yeah, we would look for any other ones. Yeah. I mean, how many, yeah, with, with postmortem stab wounds, another one would pop right up. No, yeah. this one has postmortem stab wounds too. Yeah. yeah.
1: Very cool.
2: Now, if we yeah. wanted to talk with you and and pick your brain about Sheila Shepard, what would you need? Would you need some of the case file, or would you just sort of need like a deeper whatever,
0: whatever you want to talk to me about or ask me? I don't need the entire file, but if you have questions about certain issues, you can send me information about that and and you know or news links or whatever, like we did with Mara Murray. I mean, you know, you could do that. Uh, however, you guys feel comfortable. I, you know, I, I'd be I could talk in generalities, knowing nothing. Mm-hmm and 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 address things you asked me specifically, but if you want me to have a little idea, just send me what you got. I'll look it over, and we can do this again. okay, great.
2: I have a quick question about the the book um when you were researching it and you were writing it, did you interview anybody or did you um have any moments that stood out? Was there someone that uh like really resonated with you?
0: you know, I only interviewed the detectives and the prosecutors, the ones that were alive, and uh, i one of the prosecutors I interviewed. His son. I mean, his dad had been had left the prosecutor's office, and they brought him back as a special prosecutor for this case, and it was his last case he ever prosecuted. Well, his son later himself became a prosecutor. is now private attorney, and he told me a lot of personal stuff about how this case affected his dad, because when these these boys were six years old, this kid, this guy was six years old, and he said, "My dad, because when he was dad became an adult later, they would talk a lot about this stuff when they were both." When he was a prosecutor, he said, they had these little red, red uh, I mean, uh, black with a red stripe rain boots, and you had the same kind of, same pair of rain boots, and it just hit me in the heart, you know, I saw that. And uh, that emotional tone, he said, it affected his dad the rest of his life, this mm. case. And then uh, one of the old detectives, Wally Hume, I talked to, and the first thing he tells me is, I spent my whole life trying to forget this case, and <laughs> now, now I'm trying, now I got to remember it again, you know, yeah. that's the thing, so... Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, in fact, these guys didn't see a lot of this stuff. The prosecutors more, but and not the uh, detectives didn't see a lot of this stuff in their career. This is what we call a career case, the biggest case you'll ever have in your career. And they came through having very not very little of the tools available today. They did a great job.
2: I got to say before, uh, before we wrap it up... Um... You can get this book on Amazon if you just search for uh, search for you Cloyd Steiger or Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer Gary Jean Grant. But it's a five star book.
1: Bet your ass it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's also available at uh, Barnes and Noble's probably only in this area because they is you know with regional stuff, it might only be in the bookstores around here. But you can get it at BarnesandNoble.com, Target, Amazon. Amazon, you can get everything. You know that. Yes. It's also available as an ebook on Amazon. And
2: I'm and I'm sure we could probably convince you to sign a copy for us, and maybe we could give it away as some sort of uh, raffle prize at some point.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No problem. I could send you a signed copy. Yeah. Oh, that'd be cool. Um, yeah.
2: as long as it it has to say Uncle Cloyd though.
0: <laughs> yeah, I will say Uncle Cloyd. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, thank you very much for joining us again, Cloyd Steiger, and uh, buy the book Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer, Gary Jean Grant. And we will be uh, reconnecting with you soon, Cloyd. Thanks again.
0: Sounds good. Thank you, guys.